Well, the difficulty of only preaching a few times a year is narrowing down what you want to preach on. And I feel a little bit like the, the kid in Sunday school who his teacher said, what is small and brown has a big bushy tail and stores nuts for the winter. And the kid says, I want to say a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Um, and I don't think you can go wrong with teaching about Jesus. Because believe it or not, this entire book is about Jesus. There is nothing in here that's not about him. Um, it, if you ever get to a point where you're tired of hearing the gospel, then I don't think you, we comprehend the gospel. That scripture is all about him. And it's an amazing, amazing, not only book, and if, boy, if we had time, I believe David said I could go three hours this morning, so we've got some time. Um, well, that's an audible groan on there. <laughs> Don't worry, I get hungry for lunch too, so we won't go that long, but um, it's been interesting. The last several months, we and the staff have, um, and David mentioned this a few weeks ago, we've been, we've been meditating on one verse a week. We meditate on it, um, you know, apart from our quiet times, and then we come together and just talk about that verse um, and the impact that uh, we've learned through it. And the goal is just spend 30 minutes with it, come up with either 30 things that stick out to you or at least spend the, the entire 30 times meditating on it. And a few weeks ago, don't turn there, but we were in Matthew 7. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says these words in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How can this be? This isn't Jesus speaking to the world. He's speaking to a group of followers and in the last days, when they stand before the Lord, they're going to cry out, Lord, Lord, but we did these things in your name. And he says, away from me, I did not know you. And I, I'll be honest with you, this, this is a verse as a pastor that, I don't want to use the word haunts, but motivates me with the burden of the gospel. Because I know in a room this size, there are people who do not know the Lord. I know in a room this size, there are people who think they may be okay with God but are deceived. And so this morning, my hope and prayer is that as we look at a passage of scripture that, I mean, is incredible. I mean, if I preached every week, you'd probably hear me say, this is the most incredible passage of scripture. But I'm gonna say this is a really, really good passage uh, in Matthew 13. In fact, if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew 13. That's where we're gonna be today. And that's where we're gonna, we're gonna spend our morning is in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. But... As you're turning there, let, let me just take a moment and let's pray that God's word would saturate us this morning. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your word. And I know, Father, that it's easy to say we believe. But it is very different to live a life of devotion before you. So, Father, I pray for the conviction of your word this morning. I pray, Father, that it would cut us to our very core, convict us of sin, show us our depravity and our lostness before you, and that we would see this morning the greatness of who you are, 
that you are worthy of worship. Even as we sung this morning, Lord, I pray that would be true in our lives. Those wouldn't be words that we sing or things that we use as Christian platitudes, Father. But we would be men and women who grasp the greatness of who you are and live a life set apart, a life worthy of knowing you. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 13, beginning of verse 44. Let's, let's read six verses here this morning. We're going to camp out here, or eight. We'll camp out here this morning. Verse 44, Jesus is speaking. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and that which is old. This is such a great passage. But in order for us to understand this passage, we actually have to take a higher view because Matthew in his gospel has, has built to this moment. If we see this passage in isolation, I don't think it carries the weight that the Spirit is trying to convey to us in this passage. And so uh, a few weeks ago, I told a story in my life group about a guy named Larry Walters. And I'm going to tell that story again today. So if you're in my life group a few weeks ago, act like you've never heard this. But um, we, have to, we have to take a step back to see this passage. And Larry Walters was a young man who dreamt his entire life of wanting to fly. And... Um, he ended up having really bad eyesight, so he couldn't join the Air Force and um, actually had a really difficult life. But in 1982, he came up with a great idea. And this is a true story. Don't Google it right now. You, you can check it out later because it's going to sound like I'm making this up, but it's not. In 1982, he came up with a grand idea. He was going to buy 45 weather balloons. He was going to attach them to a lawn chair. And then he was going to float up about 100 feet, bring his lunch, a few beers here and there, carry his little BB gun, float around for a little while, enjoy flying, shoot the balloons, and then float back down to earth. That was his plan. And he's not crazy. He also wanted to tie uh, milk cartons filled with water so he had a little weight on his lawn chair. So he had this plan. So in California, he decides it was the morning of it, and he gets everything ready. He fills, he ties the lawn chair to his Jeep, and he has his cartons of water tied off to the, to the lawn chair, and he gets his lunch ready, he gets his cooler ready, he has his BB gun, and he begins to feel, fill all of the weather balloons. So each weather balloon is four feet wide that he attaches to this chair. And he gets everything filled, and he sits down in his chair, ready to take his lazy stroll into the air. But before he can cut the rope, it snaps. And in his words, it was like he was shot out of cannon. So he passes 100 feet, he passes 200 feet, he passes 300 feet. He passes 1,000 feet. He doesn't stop ascending into heaven until he reaches over 16,000 feet in the air. Now, he's dropped his lunch. He's dropped his beer, but he still has his gun. 
And at this point, he's too afraid to shoot the balloons because he doesn't want to knock it off weight. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he quickly has to make a decision because the current begins to take him into the flight path of the Long Beach International Airport. And he notices when a United, Air Fly, United Airlines flight goes right by him that he needs to do something. The United Airlines pilot actually radios Long Beach and says, I've just passed a man in a lawn chair with a gun <laughs> on his lap. And so he knows at this point, I gotta do something. So he begins to shoot the balloons and he starts to descend down and he shoots too many too quickly and actually gets disheveled and drops his gun and is falling quickly. So this is when those water bottles come into play and he, un he unties a couple of his water bottles and he begins to descend and slows a little bit, but he can't control it and he actually gets entangled in some electrical lines. But since he's dangling, he does not get electrocuted. And of course, at this point now, it's big news, and the police have come out to arrest him, the news crews are there, and as they're arresting him, the arresting officers asked, what, what laws has he broken? And the officer said, we don't know what laws he's broken, but we know he's had to have broken something when they arrest him. And uh, he actually becomes, he gets his 15-minute fame from it, he's on, Larry, on um, David, not David Letterman, Larry Carson, is there, no. Johnny Carson, man, thank you, thank you. Johnny Carson, all, all this stuff. So you can go look it up later. It's a true story. Larry Walters called Larry Lawn Chair. His chair is actually in the Smithsonian now, so you can actually go see his chair. But the reason why I share that story is we have to look at the book of Matthew from a 16,000-foot view a little bit this morning. So I want you to stay in Matthew 13, but I want to actually take you back to the beginning. Don't, don't flip there because I need you to see the bigger picture. Matthew 13, seen in isolation, is still a great chapter and a great passage. But when you see it in whole, when you see it throughout the picture that God is trying to show us, I think you'll see it much differently this morning. And so if you go back to the beginning of Matthew, uh, Matthew begins with a genealogy. Now I think most of the times you read a genealogy, you just look and go, okay, let me, right, let's move on past that. But that genealogy is amazing. I mean, we can't do it this morning because I don't have enough time, unless you guys don't want to go to lunch to go through it. But that genealogy, you've got people like Tamar in that genealogy, who's a Canaanite woman, and her story, I mean, we're G, BG this morning, so I'm not going to go into it, but her story is crazy. And she's in the lineage of the Savior of the world. We, we have Rahab the prostitute is in that lineage. You have Ruth the Moabitess. All, all these people are non-Jewish. And then I love that Matthew intentionally writes that Solomon was the son of David and the son of Uriah's wife. Like for all eternity, we remember David's brokenness in that, that Solomon was born of a woman who was stolen and her husband was murdered by David, this man after God's own heart. And what we see is this lineage of brokenness, of broken humanity, but that's not what, all we should see in there. What we should see is that the God of the universe is going to use this broken people to bring his son into the world. And it's an incredible picture. And not only that, but I hope you see when you see a lineage, instead of just reading right past it, but whenever you see a genealogy, I hope the thought that comes to your mind is, God knows my name and are astounded by that. But it's an incredible picture. So we see in 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, you see the genealogy and the birth of Jesus. But then in Matthew 2 through 4, chapters 2 through 4, we, we see the next part of the picture. So Jesus is born. He goes to Egypt. Now, now, tell me if this sounds familiar. 
Jesus goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. He goes through baptism, or he goes through the water. After baptism, or going through the water, he's taken to the wilderness for 40 days, where he's tempted. Then after those 40 days, he gives the law. It almost sounds like God's Spirit has a plan that he's working through the book of Matthew. It sounds familiar. It's a very familiar story, especially if you remember Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, a people who would know this story well. And so Matthew begins to share this story through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, look at who the true Israel is. Look at who came out of Egypt and did not sin, went through the waters and did not sin, went into the wilderness and did not sin, and then gives the law and does not sin. That Matthew is showing his readers and showing us this book is about one person. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Israel. It's not about Abraham, Moses, any of them. This book has always been about one person. It's about Jesus. And what's amazing is we often come to this book and try and put ourselves into it. It's natural. I mean, we read some of the stories and think, what would I be like in that moment? But, and it's funny, we're always David in the David and Goliath. You know, we're the ones that have the faith to go down and attack. We don't, we're never the ones that are like, well, actually, I'm more of the, I'm the Israelites up on the hill yelling at David, or I'm the Hittites on the other side actually wanting to kill David. No, no, we always put ourselves in the best possible light. We just need to stop doing that. The stories in Scripture are not for you to find yourself in them. I can tell you right now, if you're trying to find yourself, you will find yourself when you find the Lord. And as you understand him more. I mean, I can remember telling my daughter before going off to school, this isn't a time to go find yourself. You don't need to be looking for yourself. You find yourself in the Lord and then everything else will be revealed. And we see this incredible picture throughout the book of Matthew where, where God is showing that it's never been about us. It's about him. So then in Matthew 5, we begin the Beatitudes start. And, you know, we call this the greatest sermon ever written or ever recorded. Jesus sits down. And remember, I told you this is the last time I taught, that whenever you see somebody sit down, that's an important notice. It's, it's the opposite. In, in Scripture, uh, and in, in the first century, the teacher, when he sat down, it meant be quiet. It meant be still and listen. Something very important is happening. There's a reason why you'll see the gospel writers record the posture of the teacher. And you'll notice when Jesus is teaching and he's walking around, people are throwing questions at him. So as he's walking and talking, people will interrupt him. They'll talk about, hey, what about my inheritance? What about this? But when he sits down, it's quiet. Because it's the opposite of us now. Now it's more casual when a teacher sits down. But when we stand up, it's kind of like, hey, it's time to just listen. I mean, you're welcome to interact. I, I can see you. So if you want to interact, we can talk this morning. That's all we're doing anyways. So in this moment, though, in chapter 5, he says, Matthew records that Jesus sits down. And then he begins to give the law. But before he gives the law, he says something that we've often struggled with. He gives what we call the Beatitudes or these blessings. But look at what he's really saying in these. Don't turn there. Just listen because I want you to hear these differently. In verse 3 of chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, before he gives the law, is actually going to sum up the gospel in these eight verses. 
He's going to take the entire Old Testament. He's going to sum up in these eight verses. Now listen to how he says this. So blessed are the poor in spirit. So blessed are those, basically he's saying, who someone understands they are not right before God. They're, they're poor in spirit. Then he said, blessed are those who mourn, so they shall be comforted. So someone who, who realizes their sinfulness before God and mourning over it. They're sad before God for it. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So now we see somebody who's broken before the Lord, who's, who's saddened by their sin, and now who knows they cannot save themselves. They're meek before the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So they're seeking after the Lord, is this person. Blessed are the merciful. So these are people now who God says, now they will receive mercy. So someone who has been broken by their sin, who's seeking the Lord, who now receives mercy. And then we see the page turn. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now it's somebody who's made right before the Lord. For they shall see God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. So now after salvation, they're actively making peace. Not only have they made peace with God, but with others. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. So now they're living out their faith. And then verses 11, blessed are those who are others, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So before Jesus gives the law, there's a reason why it's building this way. We have the genealogy. We see that Jesus came from this lineage. We see the fulfillment of the prophecy. We then see him come out of Egypt. We see him go through the water. We see him out in, in the the desert wandering for 40 days and then we see the law but before he gives the law he wants to set it up correctly because what he's going to say in the very next verse in verse 20 before he gives the law he says for I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven that's a big statement because you're about to now tell us what we need to do right that's what the law is. Isn't the law a way for you to know how to be right with God? Jesus would say no. In fact, he's prefacing. These laws are not going to save you. Before he restates the laws, because these are those famous moments when five, chapter 5 and 6 is where he says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. He actually raises the law. But as he raises the law, he sets it up and says, these will not save you. And this is, this is where I believe we first go wrong with the gospel. And I believe it's a subtle shift that has happened in the modern church. We have made Christianity into a set of moral codes. We've told people, you need to do this. And I can tell you right now, if, if my role as a pastor is to teach you to be morally right, then I have failed you. Because if you are morally right, I can guarantee you right now, there's a day you'll stand before the Lord while he will say, I did not know you. Morality will not save you. And that's what he wants them to see in this law. Before he says this, we shouldn't go to, the, to Matthew 6 and say, okay, give me my rules that I need to follow. Finally, he's going to explain the law that the, the Israelites couldn't keep. Now we can keep it in the church. It's not that way. In fact, this, a moralistic understanding of Christianity will only lead to one of two ways. You'll either sit here today and say, I'm pretty good. I mean, I, I keep it, you know, I, I know that, that it's more than just you not murdering somebody. I know to have hatred in your heart is also sin. So I, I, I'm pretty good there. I, I'm, I'm keeping a standard of laws. Or we say, I'm, a, I'm at least better than the person next to me. Nobody look or point. But we think for a moment, well, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as some people I know. And what it leads to is the self-righteousness. 
and it's subtle. But we think, as long as I keep a moral code, I'll be okay before the Lord. Or it leads to the other extreme, which is we have the weight of this moral code put upon us, these rules that we need to keep, and we can't keep, we keep falling short, we keep struggling, we don't understand why, and so then we're just devastated, and we're miserable before God, saying, how, how can anybody keep this? Because we've made it into a moralistic teaching rather than what it really is. A few weeks ago, I was talking with a friend, and uh, we were talking about the struggle of sin. And he was sharing one of the struggles that he, he was going through, and I was sharing some of mine. Yes, I struggle with sin. And I looked at him and I said, you know why we sin, right? And he had this deer in the headlight, big eyes, because it felt like I should probably know this answer, but I don't know if I want to answer this. I said, Scripture's answer is pretty simple. We sin because we love it. That's our struggle. I, I need you to hear this morning. Your struggle is not with the law. Your struggle is what you, with what you love. That's why we sin. Nobody in this room would struggle with sin if we didn't love it. It fills something within us. Talking to that friend with, a, you know, it may be a little bit of gossip, but it feeds something within us. Hating somebody that cuts you off in the street. I always like that example because there's this quick rage that comes into your mind. It feeds something within us. Being angry at your spouse or your kids, lusting in your heart, being greedy or prideful, all of that stuff feeds something within us. And we do it because we love it. And the answer that we see in Scripture is not keep these rules. The answer is there's somebody that is worthy of more of your love. That's the point of Matthew. That's the point Matthew is trying to build in this. Is that the only way we will overcome our sinfulness is by loving somebody more than that. Having a moment when we're tempted to say, no, I will not do it. Not because I have to keep a rule, but because I've fallen madly in love with my God who is worthy of that. So at the end of this sermon he gives he gives this law and he reiterates that it's not about the law because in verse 48 of chapter 5 he says you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect which no one will be able to keep that so he wants us to see it's never been about keeping a moral standard it's about an object of our affection so then after he goes through this teaching we get to Matthew chapter 7 which Matthew chapter 7 he finishes in verse 28 says and when Jesus finished these sayings so after he'd given the sermon the crowds were astonished at his teaching and they were amazed for he was teaching them as one with who had authority and not as their scribes and so for the next four chapters five chapters till we get to chapter 13 Jesus shows this authority they see this authority as teaching but what he does over these next four chapters from 8 through 12 is he teaches with authority he calls his disciples with authority he heals people he has authority over sickness he calms the storm he has authority over nature he casts out demons he has authority over demons 
He raises a woman from the dead. He has authority over death. Matthew is building a picture and he's showing us before we get to chapter 13, why chapter 13 is so important. Because as we get through this, we see all these things Jesus does, and then I think it leads us to really the next danger of the gospel, or what has been changed. Because during this time, John the Baptist is in prison, and he asks the disciples, go ask and find out if Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't answer his question. All he says is, go tell John what I've done and what you've seen. That Jesus had the authority to do these things. And so the crowds begin to gather in chapter 13, where we are this morning. He's got these big crowds. But Jesus knows they've come for the wrong reasons. And I think this is a big danger in the modern church. They haven't come to see Jesus they've come for what he can do because in chapter 13 he begins no longer to speak plainly he speaks in parables because he knows they're not coming for him and it's a subtle shift what they've begun to do is say "Ooh, I want Jesus to heal me I want Jesus to feed me I want Jesus to heal my marriage I want Jesus to take care of my kids I want Jesus to give me a new job I want Jesus to help me with my depression. I want Jesus to, to, to fix my thought life. And it's a subtle shift that our enemy knows exactly what he's doing. And the gospel no longer becomes about the greatness of who God is and Jesus himself, but it comes, the center is us. The center of the gospel is what can you do for me? And so in chapter 13, he's not gonna speak to them plainly. And I, I think this is a clear danger even today. I mean, a few months ago, we were driving up to Arkansas on vacation. I was amazed at how many billboards were on the side of the road in East Texas that were like, your marriage is struggling? Call Jesus. You're struggling with depression? You need Jesus. Now, here's the subtle struggle with that. That's true. Jesus did all these things and can do all these things but he doesn't do them because you and I are worthy of it. He does them in his authority because he is worthy. He is the object of the affection, not what he can do. And I think there are many people who come to the Lord and come to faith because they've heard great things about who God is, which again are true statements. That's why this is such a subtle danger. It is true, God does these things. God loves deeply. He cares for people. He raises people from the dead. He does these things. But he doesn't do them so that we will worship what he does. He does them to prove to who he is and that he is worthy of worship. So then we get to this chapter 13. We're gonna pop some of these balloons now and start to land he's speaking in a parable and there are two dangers when we look at this parable one we often miss the point of parables because we miss the audience so I'd always encourage you when you study a parable or you look at a parable look at who he's talking to so 13 begins where he's talking to large crowds but now he begins to siphon them out he's starting to move them along because his teachings are hard and they don't understand it. and he's doing it on purpose because they've come to him for the wrong reasons 
So where we're at in, chapter, in verse 44 is now he's going to, he's going to narrow it down to his disciples. So he's speaking with his disciples in this moment, his followers. And the crowds have shrunk. So it's important to know who he's speaking to. But it's also important, just a little side note, not to read too much into parables. Sometimes we read a parable and we look at every nook and cranny. Like we're going to look at this passage and you might think, well, the guy rehid the field. I mean, he found the treasure and then he, he buried it. That seems deceptive. That's not the point of the parable. There, there are a lot of things you can learn from parables, but sometimes we over overanalyze it. It's kind of like one of my handsome jokes. Don't overanalyze it. Just take it for what is a good, solid truth. That's a serious moment in that. And so when you read a parable, we do have that tendency because it's a narrative. It's part of the story, but we can overanalyze it. We can overread into it. So don't do those two things. When we look at this now, as we, we land this lawn chair, see it the way it is. We've, we've had the buildup to it. Jesus has proven who he is. So now he's going to say these words. And he's saying it to his disciples, and he's sitting with them. And in verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one of the pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it I mean we could spend a lot of time in these verses but I want us to catch the main point the first thing I want you to see this morning is this treasure wasn't free. Now we will often say, well, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You're right. I'm not taking that away. The gospel came at an incredible cost, not to us, but to the creator of the universe. He cost him his one and only son. But hear me this morning when I tell you this. Becoming a believer costs you nothing. Living the life of a believer will cost you everything. And I think that's where we've missed it. We've tried to have both and. We like what Jesus can do. We want him in our back pockets. We want him in the moments when our marriage struggles or work stinks or I'm just struggling with some kind of sin. We want Jesus to show up and take care of things. But we like to kind of push him to the side and say, okay, now get out of the way. I just, when, when there's a fire, I want you to show up and put it out. But other than that, I got this. And we lose sight of who he is. This treasure was not free. In both of the examples that Jesus gives, the man who finds it goes and sells all he has. It comes at a cost. I think too many believers have not counted that cost. Too many people who say they follow the Lord have not really thought through and said, do, do I look at this, do I look with my walk as the Lord mean everything to me does my life revolve around him because it does cost i mean right now there are all these ads for the iphone 15 marketing works because sometimes i look at them like wow look at that thing came from outer space how did they do that and it looks and you think oh i want the new iphone 15 but you got to trade in your existing phone for it well, i like my existing phone now the iphone 15 is better than my phone and if i want it then i have to trade in my existing so it will come as a cost. But the cost is less than what I'm receiving. Now that's a really shabby example. But the reality is when this treasure is found, 
Both of these merchants, whether it's the pearl or the treasure in the field, sell everything they have. And in their joy, they purchase it. What, they, what he's saying here is, it will cost. Being a believer costs. If anybody has told you otherwise, they're a liar. Jesus promises, in this world you will have trouble. Think about that for a moment. A God who can change anything is, is promising you that you will have trouble. There will be a struggle. Your faith should cost you. You should say, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to watch every show on Netflix and actually read my Bible. That's a cost. Maybe I shouldn't let my life revolve around my kids or my spouse or my job. Maybe there's something more important to live for. And the question is, if you haven't found that moment, I just need you to hear this morning, you are in danger of hearing away from me, I did not know you. Because the God of the universe will not share you. He will not allow you to have one foot in the world and one foot with him. There is no halfway. And the reason is very simple because he is worthy of a life set apart. He is worthy to be able to say, I will forsake all else to seek after you. Are you willing to do that? Is he a treasure that you found? And maybe to this point, you haven't found him worthy of that. Just own it. Don't act like it's not true. Don't, don't fool yourself this morning and say, well, I'm here in church, so obviously he's worth something. Well, yeah, it's worth an hour to come watch a handsome man tell you a story. I had to get one in. I mean, that's not a cost. My question to you this morning, if you honestly look at your life, what does it revolve around? I, before I went into ministry, I, I was a financial planner and advisor. And so I, I still love helping families with their finances and talk through it. And, and when somebody comes, you know, I'm a pastor, so I always begin a conversation with, tell me what's most important to you. Now, they're talking to a pastor, so they're always very spiritual all of a sudden. Well, you know, they'll say, well, Jesus is number one, and then family. And they have really good answers. And then I'll say, okay, now let's look at where your money goes. And then it's kind of like, Ugh. And I'm like, well... I believe you're a fan of the Astros because I can see it very clearly where your money goes. Or you definitely like trucks because there's a lot of your money going there or whatever it is. And, and I don't think people consciously do it. They're not trying to. In fact, most believers I sit down with and are helping are saying, I don't know how we got into this because it's not the way we want our lives to look. Our money has fallen off of things that do not matter, whatever it might be. And now we're in this situation where we know we're not honoring the Lord. So I want you to consider that. Are you giving lip service to what really matters? Are you saying Jesus is all that matters yet live a life that is completely contrary to it? If I spent a week with you, walking with you and everywhere you went, would I come at the end of the week and go, man, that person loves Jesus? Or would I say, well, they're really good at their job. And I can't answer that question for you. It'd be the same thing for me. Is this just a church, Scott, that we get to see? Or does he really live his life as someone who is madly in love with the God of the universe? And here's the issue. I'm not sure we're a people that have got on our knees before the Lord and said, show me yourself worthy. Because right now, I'll be honest, there's a lot of my life that is distracted. 
there's a lot of good TV out there. I mean, how sad is that? There's a lot of new shows coming out. I mean, Marvel's gone downhill, but I still want to know what happened with Loki and all this stuff. And hear me when I say this. We still have lives to live. I'm not saying you can just sit here on your knees all day for the Lord. But I can tell you right now, the only person in this room who knows if you're right before the Lord is you and the Lord. But my challenge to you this morning is, have you found the treasure in the field? And does your life really reflect that? Only you can answer it. But I bet if we sat down and really talked about what your week looked like, you would quickly say, hmm, I say Jesus is most important. But really, my kids' activities take up 90% of my week. Or my time on entertainment takes up that time. But I work hard, so I need to rest in the evening. My hope and prayer is your rest is in your Lord, not in the new Netflix show or the new YouTube show or whatever. I mean, we, are, we live in a generation that is constantly entertained. And it is the challenge of the gospel to teach people who no longer think deeply to consider things deeply. Everything else in the world is trying to get us to not think deeply. There's a reason why you want to sw swipe really quickly. Swipe down or up, what? I don't even know which direction you're swiping. But you want to quickly, whenever you start to think deeply, you're like, ah, let me change the subject. I don't really want to be convicted. Let me be entertained in some other way. And I want you to hear this morning Matthew 7. Away from me, I did not know you. It is my role and my calling to stand on the wall and cry out. Judgment is coming, but we serve a God who is worthy of worship, and he is a treasure to be found. Let's hear this last part in verse 47. It says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. It's the kingdom that is gathered. Now hear, hear this, this isn't, he's not making an example of the world and the church. He's not separated those. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown in the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fire furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? So he's asking because these are parables. Do you understand this, disciples? And they say yes. He doesn't need to give an explanation for these. They simply say yes. And he said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So he's bringing this picture and showing how the gospel fulfills the question of the Old Testament. The question of the Old Testament is very simple. It ends without an answer. How can sinful men and women be made right before a holy God? That's what they know. The answer is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. But notice in this parable how there's separation within the kingdom of heaven. And this is what I need you to hear this morning. One of the hardest explanations that God gives about a true faith in 1 John and in Hebrews is that it will last. That's his explanation. 
That's a hard question. Like, Lord, am I really saved? You know what? You'll know because you'll be there in the end. Now, First John is written so that you'll know, be, you'll, you'll know that you're saved. So I'm not, I'm not saying everybody in here is lost. Just hear me when I say that. You can know that you're saved. You can know that you know that you know that you're saved. But my question is, have you wondered that? Do you know? Does your life reflect someone who has found the treasure in the field and nothing else matters? And if it doesn't, then why? Last few years, we were overseas. We began to wrestle with a call back to the States. One of the biggest motivating factors that God was using was we were seeing uh, former friends or people, still were friends, but people we knew really well in the States that were part of the church we had planted were beginning to deconstruct their faith which is just a fancy word to say I'm not going to trust God in the hard times. It's really all it means. It means to people that have come to God for what he can do, and when he doesn't do what I told him to do, then he's not the God of the universe anymore. I know better than he does. And it always, what we always saw in people's lives was there was a moment that they came to a crossroad, and it usually involved suffering. There was a moment that was hard and difficult, whether it was a marriage difficulty or a death or a, I mean, real struggles. And what we found is those who had come to a deceptive gospel, those who had come to know the Lord through what he can do and maybe more of a fire insurance, when that moment came and he was no longer good because he didn't do what they said, then they wanted no part of him hear me this morning you are not the prize of the gospel God in himself was not in heaven one day going I am missing something I need humanity he does not need us it was his good pleasure to create us and to go through all of this junk so that he would make a people of his own this is the beauty of the gospel God did not bring you out of darkness so that you could sit in the garden and play with lions someday that's not the gospel. The gospel is not paradise lost and paradise regained. The gospel is the God of the universe has made a people of his own. He has brought us out of darkness for a purpose, to know him fully and to be his children. And that should overwhelm us with the greatness of who he is. If we see the gospel as a moral code that we need to keep, we will fall short. If we see the gospel, all the things that Jesus can do, we will fall short. But I'm going to ask you to do something a little different this morning. As the band comes up, I would ask you right where you are to take a moment to close your eyes and bow your head. Because I can't answer this question for you I can't bring conviction. Only you know what your day-to-day -day life looks like. Only you know what really matters. And my hope and prayer is there are people in this room who fully understand the greatness of God, but maybe have wrestled with the fact that their lives don't reflect it. They've allowed some things to crowd out the greatness of who God is. 
They've allowed, and not just bad things, but good things to take precedent in their hearts and their minds over the greatness of who God is. So this morning, our invitation, what I want to ask you to do is go before the Lord and ask that question. Do I love you above all else? Have I come to you wrong? Is there anything in my life that outwardly and inwardly has my attention in front of you? Even if it's good. There's a reason why in Matthew 6, Jesus can say, seek me first in my kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. He is worthy of a life set apart. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and saying, I've never known you worthy of that. How can you be worth more than my kids, my family, my spouse, my job, the things that make me comfortable? I can tell you right now that Jesus would say, if you love your father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you love your brother or sister or anything in this life, He's using the most extreme example to say, if any of your affection is on anything else apart from me, then you're a danger of hearing away from me. I did not know you. This morning, my challenge to you is cry out before your God. Find him worthy of worship. Ask him to search your heart. Ask him to search your ways. And lay it before him that he would, you would be found worthy before him and that he would be the treasure that you found in the field that you're willing to sell everything to him. Let me pray with you as we pray this morning. Father, there is no one like you. You are worthy of worship. And we sit here in this room confessing so much of this world has gotten our attention. Our jobs, our families, our laziness, our greed, our envy. Father, we have loved things that we don't want to love. So I pray, Father, this morning that you would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction, reminder where there needs to be reminder and joy where there is joy. Father, that we would become blind to all else in this world and allow you to take care of all the details because you are worthy of worship. Thank you, Father, that you are a treasure worth selling everything for. And I pray that in our joy, we would cling to you. Thank you for this morning. 